Thanks, everyone. It's exciting to be here. Um, before I get started, quick question. Who here is working on a startup at the moment? Right, how many of you are looking for funding? All right, my email is carlos at seedcamp.com. I want to hear all about it. And I have some of our companies are here, actually. Um, if you're a Seedcamp founder or have been in the past, where are you? Ben's back there. Power is here. I think there's another one running around. So if you want to ask about Seedcamp, you can get those guys as well. Anyway, I was asked by the organizational staff to come and chat a little bit about venture capital and investing. I think we've heard some stories about sort of the dystopian nature of the future, also the utopian version of the future, job changes, and the winters, the winters of investment where people lost a lot of money or a lot of expectations, the highs and lows. And I think that the money, the money behind all this is really, uh, I guess, my role in this case. Uh, finding the right opportunities, giving them the right money so that they can grow. So who am I? Well, I'm a partner at Seed Camp. So at this point, I think the, the, one of the largest portfolios in AI, which I'll talk about in a bit, is just we haven't really talked about it publicly too much. Uh, we're also going to be turning 10 this year. We're going to be turning a decade old, which is kind of insane. And I think we're probably Europe's first seed fund in that sense, uh, early stage seed fund. So very excited about kind of the things and opportunities that we've been seeing over time. You might have seen some of the news that we've had recently. Uh, so it's super excited about the successes our companies are having. So as I mentioned earlier, we've been sort of secretly or not so secretly investing in uh, AI and ML companies. I'm going to use those terms interchangeably just because I think it's kind of colloquialism at this point. But um, the reason why is because the way that we see investing in this sector is sl perhaps slightly different than other funds which are either specializing in the sector or perhaps are taking bigger bets with regards to specific elements of the value chain. But before I go into sort of how we invest and what we look at and sort of my general thesis on the matter, let's look at some of the global trends in this space. First of all, there was a New York Times article that just came out, uh, I think it was two days ago, about the rate at which China is outpacing the US in AI innovation. And yet, it doesn't show up here, which is a very strange thing to see, partially because the, the expectation, perhaps, is that a lot of it's concentrated around the big companies that we've heard of to date, you know, Tencent and Baidu. And another one could be very well because a lot of the innovation, especially with image processing and NLP, um, is probably contained within military. And so it's not something we're seeing, but that might have a trickle-down effect, which venture capital will not have access to. These numbers probably represent venture capital more than anything else, rather than actual sort of pace of innovation or, or um, granularity of the technology being able to execute. Now, if you look at the global financing history, this is accelerating. It's accelerating, I think, for reasons that we're all aware of. You know, stuff works now. You know, you see Teslas, cars. You see a lot of these things that are just amazing. But I also think it's accelerating because it's, it's hiding um, a fact about the nature of this segment. And I'll talk about my thesis about this in a second, but what it's hiding, I believe, is that it's, a fracture, it's about to fracture into a bunch of sub-industries which are all amplified by AI the way that mobile did. And I'll get into that in a second. But just so you can get a quantum of the growth of this sector, here's two sectors that are generally considered hot, although PropTech has had a bit of a hit in the last year. But you can see, for example, that fintech, which is probably one of the hottest sectors, and we have a couple of com we have several companies in this space, including Transferwise. Uh, you can see the growth there, right? And if I go back a slide, you can see that it's kind of on track. It's kind of in that same stage. But where this is tricky is, for those of you that went upstairs, there was like a couple of fintech AI companies. Well, where do they sit in this spectrum? And this is kind of one of those things I want to talk about. 
So with all this growth, one of the questions is, is, is the winter coming? How many of you are Game of Thrones fans? Yeah. We had Dr. Stefanos talking earlier about the first winter. And I would, there's a great podcast that I heard recently where they were talking about what the first winter technologies looked like and what they could and couldn't do. But suffice it to say, the first winter came and went, partially because stuff didn't work. It was just the components of, of AI that then allow you to commercialize other solutions with those components were just not functional. The same thing happened in the second winter, which was around expert systems. It turns out that the maintenance of those systems and the cost of those systems increasingly became quite, quite expensive, but also obsolete. It just became irrelevant because computers were getting a lot better at replacing some of those things. And therefore, just in general, the cost of, of what they were trying to do was just not tenable. So before I, I go any further, let me take a strategic pause and maybe decipher what an investment winter is. Because I mean, the obvious thing is, well, it's when funding dries up. But I want to put it in terms of venture capital, just so that it's, we're all speaking the same language. So the way that an investment winter forms is through a combination of various factors. I'm going to start kind of backwards to forwards. Vaporware. What you saw in the first and second winter were component failures, if you will. I'm just kind of coining a term on the spot. But this vaporware is where you believe something is going to work, and then it, in fact, it doesn't work. Um, it's funny because I went to Carnegie Mellon for my undergrad, and both, the, both of the hype machines of the first and second winter before were of failed experiments coming out of Carnegie Mellon, so I feel kind of both excited that we were doing a lot of the early stuff, but then not so excited about the fact that they failed. But vaporware is basically where you see a lot of promise, and then in effect, it doesn't come out the other end as a functional technology. You know, I've, or the alternative is, as an investor, you start seeing a lot of companies coming in that are over-promising. You know, I had a company come by and visit us about like maybe two weeks ago, you know, with a .ai domain, and there was actually nothing done yet when it came to anything having to do with the ML or AI component of it. It was just kind of like a hope and a promise, and they were hiring people to do that for them. And so the moment you start seeing deals like that, when valuations start going up, because of that, because of that buzzword, that is when you start worrying whether you're entering a winter. But there are mechanisms to, to mitigate that, and that's what we'll talk a little bit in a, in, a, in a bit. So what does it feel like to go through an investment winter? Well, this is Wim Hof. I, uh, I've seen a couple of his videos where he does these amazing feats of surviving through winters, and I think some of the amazing feats that startups go through in surviving winters sometimes showcase some of the best companies come out of winters. So first of all, if you are a company that ever has to go through a winter and you survive it, you'll probably be the stronger for it. But going through an investment winter is a bit challenging, not just because it's hard to raise investment, but because the way that investors think about investing varies. If you've already received investment and you have backing from very notable investors, they will shift some of their capital to defending those investments. If you are looking for investments, it's not unusual to have down rounds or flat rounds where valuations are not necessarily what you had hoped or what were the case maybe two or three years ago when the, the bubble was going up. And so, generally speaking, it takes longer to fundraise. Now, luckily, that is not the situation right now. It's expected that this year there's going to be a 300% increase in funding for AI companies. For all of you that raised your hand, this is definitely the time, the best time for you to go fundraise. However, word of caution. A lot of VCs are waking up to the fact that there's a lot of buzzwords and there's a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily fully there. 
And so what we look for, and I'll talk a little bit about what SeedCamp looks for, what we look for are companies that are tackling commercial problems, because even if the technology kind of perhaps doesn't do what it needs to do, you can sort of fall back on regression models or other mechanisms by which still deliver value to a customer. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's ideal, but we, we're all aware of the fact that there's a lot of stuff that could or could not happen. So how is AI different? <coughs> Earlier when I was talking about that growth curve and in investments, one of the things that's interesting is to look at subsectors. And subsectors are like sub-industries, like healthcare and other areas like that. And I'll, get, I'll show you a graph that shows how investors have been investing in that. But one of the curious things is that this is a pattern that I recognize from the 2007, 2010, early iPhone era. We saw a lot of areas where um, people were aggregating uh, companies into this category called mobile. But then, over time, it fractured, and now pretty much every company has a mobile component. We don't think of, we don't see graphs of mobile investment in, as much anymore. We now see companies that are enabled by mobile technologies. And a lot of those companies that were creating stuff for mobile got acquired as part of large platforms. You know, like geolocation-type platforms, they've all been acquired by the Googles of the world, and you just use their APIs when you're building your app on that. And we're starting to see that now, in terms of AI companies being acquired for all different components of the AI value chain. Another thing that's very different about AI today is that the computational power and the cost of the computational power has declined substantially from back in the first two winters. So now a lot of stuff works. So the component failures of those two first winters are not happening now. You know, I was having a chat with Dr. Stefanos about some of the things that are going on. Even if they're good enough, they're at the point now where they are working. They're just there. And of course, the data, the data sets that are required to power this are there as well. There's a lot more structured data. We have a lot more geotagged stuff. We have a lot more uh, image tags. We have a lot more stuff that we can then leverage to train algorithms faster with more computational power to actually get us something meaningful. So I think that those are critical things that make this time substantially different. Doesn't necessarily mean that we're not necessarily going to hit a valuation bubble at some point, but it's not going to be a catastrophic drop the way the first two winters are. Rather, there might be a correction. So here's some data showing how, like mobile, there's this aggregation of startup and innovation being sort of funneled into major platforms. Look at all the different acquisitions and the speed of acquisition over the last few years. And almost all of them are done by Google, Intel, Apple, Twitter, and Salesforce as of last year. And it's just speeding up because those guys are going to become that platform that we're going to build stuff on. You know, like a lot of companies use TensorFlow, for example. It's just, it's just commoditizing components of the value chain. And that's why at SeedCamp, and I'll talk a little bit about it later, we're investing in the commercialization of, of um, or rather, we're looking at commercial applications of this technology rather than looking at some of these things, which is going to be very hard for a startup to compete with. So here's some of the sub-industries of investment. As you can see, healthcare is the number one. And I'm going to share with you a couple of ideas why I think that is. And I've interviewed some of our founders why this is the case. We've made several healthcare investments in this space. And then you see other ones like robotics. And after we've heard some of the, the talks this morning, you know, one of the speculations why robotics has received less investment, perhaps it's because we're not close enough to general AI at the moment to merit these kinds of investments. And maybe to investors, it still feels like vaporware. Whereas with healthcare, one of the challenges with healthcare is that there's very little margin for error. And a lot of the tasks that are done in healthcare are mundane, and which leads to boredom, which leads to simple user error. There's the things that can be checklisted. You know, I would, how many of you read this book called The Checklist Manifesto? It's a great book, very little, 
But it's actually useful in getting you to think about how many things we do as very smart people, like pilots, very smart people, and yet you make simple mistakes because you did not go through that checklist when this situation happened. I fully expect those kinds of roles, jobs, or components of someone's job to be fully automated within, definitely within three years. And a whole bunch of startups that are going to disrupt that. So if you're building a startup, think about these kinds of things because they're going to generate a whole slew of new opportunities. The next one is, and we talked about this, Callum was talking about this before, before I came on stage, a little bit about industries where labor is good enough if it's AI based. It's just good enough. It doesn't mean that it's going to be as good as it, as it was when it was a human, but the margins around the product and the economic drivers just force it in that direction. I'll give you a historical example. Um, how many of you read the article in The Economist that came out yesterday on the Bracero movement? I don't know, maybe a couple of you have. So the Braceros uh, in the 1960s was this uh, labor movement that the US had in place to bring cheap labor into farming. And because of sort of the revolt of the American worker, and this is clearly a, a sore point today with regards to the American worker feeling disintermediated through immigration. Well, in the case of uh, the 1960s Bracero program, it was just that the local worker was feeling disintermediated by the immigrant worker. So they canceled the Bracero program. And uh, the expectation was that by canceling it, all the Americans would get their jobs back. But the problem was that the, the, the companies had already optimized their models around the, the costs and the margins associated with a lower, cheaper labor cost. And so that became very hard to re reinstate. Rather, what happened was that industries adapted themselves and shifted the way that they used their uh, land for products and services and produce that was more optimized towards the kinds of costs they could afford. For example, everything started migrating towards plants that could be mechanized or could be harvested through mechanization. Today, a lot of the farms in California have moved away from difficult hand-picked type products like apricots because they bruise easily to more brutally uh, harvestable type uh, produce like almonds where they can just literally be banged off the tree and then harvested up through a mechanized process. So if you think about customer service, we've exported customer service in the past to countries where maybe English is not a first language, and that became very difficult, and customer service representatives were a bit frustrated, as well as the customers themselves, in that intercommunication. And the cost basis to bring it back into England or back into the United States, for example, was probably too high. You're going to start seeing not that the US jobs and the UK jobs are going to come back in full force. Rather, there's going to be a mass migration towards some sort of automated customer service process whereby it's good enough and it might have a couple of specialists that deal with the situation at the other end of it. We have a company that we've invested in called Reinfer that helps uh, any customer service representative get a very good emotional track of what it is that customer's feeling so that when they do get a case, they kind of already know what needs, what's already happened, what that customer's going through, and can automate a certain point of it and they only deal with it when it gets you know, really bad or when it's really good and they need to do something to reward behavior or something like that. So that's kind of where I'm seeing this evolve, this shift in labor. And one of the unfortunate things of this is that we might actually have to shape how we look for business and how we look for interactions to be able to adapt to the needs of AI, which is kind of like an inverse. Rather than AI serving us, we're serving AI. So that's another thing that could very well happen. So as far as Seedcamp, what are we looking to invest in? Well, we're looking to invest in industries that can unlock huge value when it comes to the, the AI and ML technologies that are being uh, developed. I'll talk a few uh, about our companies in a bit, 
Uh, healthcare, obviously, being one of those that came up. NLP and component technologies is another that we looked at, computer vision. And data sets. I think data sets are one of those things that we haven't really talked about uh, today. We have two companies that we invested in, Open Sensors, and another one's called Repositive. Repositive has a, a slew of genomic data, and that genomic data is being used by potential new pharmaceuticals or existing pharmaceuticals in generating new kinds of drugs based upon successful uh, drugs in the past. So here's a list of our, some of our companies, not all of them, but um, and I'm going to, hopefully if I have time, do I still have a little bit of time? I, maybe Pari, if you want to come up. And we'll, we'll have you share a little bit about what you're working on uh, from the lectern microphone. But we have some of our companies here that are working on various different things. Uh, Giant and VizAI, for example, are healthcare-related companies. Uh, Giant has an app right now that is collecting information about people who believe that they might be affected by the Zika virus. And by generating a series of data sets and, and funneling it through a triage protocol, they're getting visibility and training their, their algorithms to better understand when somebody does or does not have Zika, and they're going to be able to roll that out across different types of like point type analysis for healthcare, like STDs, for example, in the future, so that medical practitioners are not overwhelmed by some of these cases, especially in situations where there's like a, a mass breakout without having to just do the same thing over and over and over again, AI is going to take over. Another company of ours, VizAI, goes through ultrasound and radiological images and helps specialists. Um, in specific hospitals to be able to get faster action on images and image analysis rather than having to rely on a generalist radiology, which is one of those practices in the, in the US that is declining and therefore making it harder and harder for specialists to action particular cases quickly. Then there's other areas that we've invested in, legal being another one. Legal is one of those areas where there's a lot of rote work. Is this a legitimate patent? So we have a company called Legit Patents, creative, excuse me. Beagle is another one that deals with contract analysis. What are the things in a contract that are good or bad? A lot of these things, as we heard from previous speakers, are things that can be easily automated, and hence why we believe it's ripe for disruption. So I'm going to let Parry share a little bit about kind of what he's working on, maybe um, see kind of where we're seeing in the future. All right? Thanks. Thanks, Carlos. Um, so as Carlos mentioned, I'm one of the founders of the rocket company, and we make rockets. Uh, now, it's not going to be a surprise when I say rockets cost lots of money, but it's not for the reason that most people think it is. You see, when you buy a rocket, only about 10% of the cost is the actual rocket cost. Rockets cost millions to manufacture, but billions to develop. And that R&D cost is the single biggest cost in any engineering product. And that was a bit of an issue for us, because when we were third years and committed to building rockets, we were broke and didn't have any money, let alone a billion dollars. Um, so we went back to the drawing board and we completely re-engineered the way we're doing engineering. And our new next generation, next generation engineering process takes out about 97% of the cost in building anything. And we're starting with rockets. Now that's great, number one, but what it means is the fundamental shift in number one, the way we design and how we design and the thought process that go into that. We build software that develops hardware, which allows us to bring software down time scales, team scales, and costs to rocket design. But for the very first time, what that means is that we can put in one input and get one simulated data set out or we can put in 6 to 15, which I did for my thesis. And once you have that sort of knowledge and power and, and information that people just can't process, you're able to do a huge amount. And that's really where we see the future. We see the future in a human AI collaboration to build newer, better, cooler things than was ever possible before. Um, we're one of the CEO companies, and it's been incredible. So definitely apply if you're thinking about it. Thanks, Carlos. Cool. Thanks, Ray.
So obviously when you have a big collection of smart people in, uh, of, in the Seedcamp family, one of the advantages is that you can bring them together. So for those of you that are wondering kind of what, what we can do for you, it's not just spending time with the Seedcamp team, which is great. You know, we're very passionate about what we do. But I think a large part is also being able to compare notes with the likes of Perry and some of the other founders that we have, some of the ones that I mentioned earlier, which allows you to perhaps learn through some of the challenges that you're having a lot more quickly. But we also have a way for you to publicly subscribe to some of these learnings. Uh, we have a podcast series called This Much I Know, where I interview a lot of individuals around different segments. These are some of the ones that I've done on AI. Uh, recently, the one that most recently one was with the Exponential View founder Azim Azar. How many of you subscribe to his newsletter? It's a great newsletter. I think he's going to be publishing on that newsletter the podcast I did with him this week. Anyway, Kenneth Cookie, who's the, the editor of The Economist that focuses us in this area. And then we've had a couple that, that deal with what the future and the implications of this are in, in AI and ethics. And I, there's one that I haven't published yet that's coming out in about maybe a couple of weeks with Tristan Harris, which is also tackling the ethics behind the attention economy and perhaps how AI is going to influence that. And for those of you that are fundraising, I have to shamelessly plug my book as well. If you guys are looking to fundraise and want to understand how the process works a little bit more, it's a free download uh, before version 2 comes out, which will then uh, be paid uh, as most premium products. But uh, hopefully you'll get a lot of value out of this, and uh, any questions that you want to ask me, feel free to reach me on my Twitter account, at CEE, or follow SeedCamp, and you can read more about what we do on our website. And hopefully I'll be hearing from you for either an investment at the pre-seed stage or at the seed stage, whichever stage you're in, I'd love to hear from you. Thank you.